Open with me to Matthew chapter 13. We've been here before recently, just a couple months ago, looking at two other parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. This Sunday, we are in the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. With this, we're going to wrap up a four-part series on the kingdom of God, looking specifically at Jesus's words about the kingdom. So let's rewind a bit and survey the ground we've covered. If you really can only remember one thing from these four sermons, I would want it to be this. Rather than referring to a specific time or place or circumstance or condition, the kingdom of God is a dynamic concept of the power of God. It encapsulates the rule and the reign of God. And so the words that we translate as kingdom, both in Hebrew and in Greek, refer primarily to the power, the authority itself, the sovereignty of the king, and not as much to his land or his people or the environment over which he reigns. So then when we hear the kingdom, when we hear the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's helpful for us to read it as the kingship of God. Do you see the difference? The kingship of God. So when Jesus comes in Matthew 4, as we looked at this summer, and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, we can read this as God is now taking control. His promised power is here and at work. The kingship of God is at hand. And I believe this is helpful for us because we tend to think about the kingdom in a handful of overly simplistic ways, right? We can think of the kingdom of God as simply heaven. It's just one day someday, new heavens and new earth. One day we'll live in the kingdom. Or we can think as the kingdom as just earth, right? Maybe it's really about our activity, living out godly principles for the highest good of society, Maybe some of you tend to think of the kingdom simply as your inner spiritual life, the work of the Holy Spirit within your heart. Or maybe we think of the kingdom as primarily the church. Now, is there a kernel of truth in each one of those? Yes, of course. But think about it. If the kingdom is simply heaven, then this world doesn't matter that much. If we believe this, we can really just focus on escaping it one day. And if the kingdom is simply earth, then we can have a kingdom without a king. We can do good to our neighbors. We can bring good laws and good culture, but avoid calling people to repentance and faith the way that Jesus does. If the kingdom is simply our inner spiritual life, then we become kingdoms and kings to ourselves and need neither a kingdom nor a king outside of ourselves. And if the kingdom is simply the church, we can detach live in a parallel society. At most, seeking the kingdom would mean doing evangelism to grow the church. Do you see the pitfalls? But as the light of Christ shines into the kaleidoscope of his kingdom, it refracts into brilliant images. And scripture gives us all kinds of images of what the kingdom is. It's a dynamic concept. If we see the light of the king through the kaleidoscope of his power, then the kingdom is all of the above. Because Christ is above all. Do you see it? So it's not just future. It's not just present. It's not just physical. It's not just spiritual. It's not just external. It's not just internal. It's all of it. It's wherever the power of God touches as he comes to rescue his people. That 
is the kingdom of God. And so today, we come to discover the cost of the kingdom, the price of the kingdom, the value of the kingdom. To follow Jesus, to walk with the people of God in the power of God, we all must leave something behind. Something. And these two parables lead us, if you're a note taker, to count the cost and grieve the loss and to place utmost value in the cross. Count the cost, grieve the loss, and place utmost value in the cross. My hope is that, in the words of missionary and martyr Jim Elliott, that today we would have the courage to give what we cannot keep, to gain what we cannot lose. Let's read, and then we'll pray together. Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would uncover far more than we can ask or think as we dig into the rich soil of your word. Lord, may you hide those riches in our hearts. And Lord, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight and yours alone, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. My kids can hardly believe me when I tell them that we really only had four TV channels growing up. And she's like, they're like, what are TV channels? And I said, you couldn't pause. There was no rewinding. There was no fast forwarding. And you definitely couldn't pick what you wanted to watch. You were at the mercy of what was on the television. And you knew the situation was particularly dire when we resorted to watching Antiques Roadshow on PBS. Anybody familiar? If you're unfamiliar with Antiques Roadshow, it's this really boring show, but it bring, people bring their trinkets, the things from their home, and they bring it to an expert to find out if it wasn't worth the gas it took them to get there to get it appraised, or if they were harboring treasure unaware, and it's worth a vast sum. And it was always fascinating to look at something and guess, oh yeah, I bet you that's worth a lot, and then find out, no, it's trash. And as a kid, I remember looking around our house after watching, right? Because that's immediately where I go. What could I turn in? What, what could I bring to Antiques Roadshow? Because my dad's idea of decorating was putting all his grandmother's trinkets on those bookshelves. And I was like, well, what about that? Could I bring that in? He's like, no, I don't think that's worth anything. But I think it reveals something about us, right? We love the idea of discovering treasure right in front of us. Discovering wealth unaware it reveals something about our hearts and its search for treasure. We love the idea of getting everything by giving up hardly anything. Low risk. But Jesus here tells us that we only get everything by giving up everything. We only get everything by giving up everything. Look with me at the first parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. It may strike you like it did me as a bit of a strange ethical dilemma for this man, right? 
I was, it was drilled into me when I was young. What do you do if you find a wallet? You turn it in. You find an adult, you turn it in. That's the right thing to do. But the idea of buried treasure and finding buried treasure was not as uncommon in ancient cultures as we might think, nor was it limited to the activity of pirates. There were no banks, right? And so keeping large amounts of wealth in an insecure dwelling would have been unwise for all kinds of reasons. It was not uncommon for large amounts of wealth to be buried for safekeeping. But think about it. What if that person dies? What if they have to quickly flee due to civil unrest? This treasure in the parable, if it had belonged to the current owner of the field at the time of the digging, would have most definitely not been included in the sale. I hear, oh yeah, I'll sell my field to you. There's some treasure there, you're, you're free to have it. If he had known it was there, he, it would have already been in his possession. But what likely happened is that this day laborer, maybe this man is digging a well or an irrigation ditch, he stumbled across someone else's long lost treasure. This is truly a case of finders keepers. The second parable is a little bit more straightforward. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. Even in Jesus' day, divers would search the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and, and the Indian Oceans to search for valuable pearls. Some could be worth millions of dollars. I think Cleopatra owned one, they said, at the time would have been the equivalent of a billion dollars or something. It's valuable currency if it's the right type of pearl. But notice, with the first parable, the man, is not, the man with the shovel is not looking for treasure, and yet he finds it. But with the second parable, do you see the difference? He knows the treasure he's looking for. He's a merchant. He's looking for pearls, and he finds it, even if those around him are oblivious. One is searching. The other is not. But both have the same response. They sell everything of value to gain something of inexpressibly more value. Some of us today might not be looking for the kingdom. But I pray that today your eyes are open to its value in a way that you haven't seen before. To the point that your heart is awakened to the call of God, not just on your soul, but on your life. Maybe the kingdom has been right in front of you your whole life, but you're not looking for it. Others among us, though, may come in here exhausted from the search. Exhausted from the search. You want so badly to be kingdom-minded that you are constantly examining your life and your motives. I pray that you can take joy and comfort in this, that the kingdom has come. And that the king is coming to find you. These parables might hit you like they hit me, right? In my risk-averse heart. I'm not a risk-taker. I married one. I'm not one. Okay? The call of the kingdom, though, is a call to risk. The call of the kingdom is a call to risk. It's a call to lose. The kingdom comes at great cost because the kingdom come with greatest value. Greatest value. So first, Jesus invites us to count the cost and grieve the loss. Let's place these parables in their broader context of the Gospels. In Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then in Matthew 19, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you hear that Revelation kingdom um, imagery there? A kingdom of priests to reign with the Son? And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many of you are first, will be last, and the last first. Walking with the people of God and the power of God will cost us. It will cost us. Jesus here says it will definitely cost us ourselves, our lives, our honor, our pride, but it very well may cost us family and wealth and opportunity. Abraham left everything. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah lost everything, as did Joseph before them. Job lost everything. The disciples left their boats. They left their nets. In Scripture, we hear of name changes, sacrifices of safety, loss of inheritance. But notice the Pharisees would not lose their righteousness. They wouldn't leave that. Certain rich men wouldn't leave their riches, not because righteousness and riches are evil by no means, but because of they were holding, instead of holding loosely to these things, these things had a hold on them. These things had a hold on their heart. What are you holding on to? Or put it another way, what is holding on to you? What might the kingdom cost you? To gain the kingdom, what must, we, what must we lose? What is the cost, the real cost, for you and for me? For what must we appear foolish, like a working man with a shovel selling his clothes, his tools, his home? Can you imagine the comments from neighbors and friends and family? He sold everything for that field? What a fool. What a joke. He's going to regret that. What is the cost of the kingdom? Well, we don't have to wonder. We can look at the parables. Look at the text with me. What does each man have to give up? In his joy, he goes and sells all. Verse 46, went and sold all. I don't have to go through various examples of things you might need to give up. Jesus tells us, it's everything. We lose all. We give away all. Every part of our life comes under the kingdom of God. Every single part. In January, I'll be running my third half marathon. And before you get the wrong idea, okay, um, I am a participant. I am not a, how do you put it? Um, I'm not in the running. I'm running, but I'm not in the running. I'm what you call, hopefully, a finisher, okay? Um, 
Eric Little, a missionary and Olympian, is famous for saying, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I like to say, God also made me for a purpose, but he also made me slow. And when I run, I feel his wrath. (laughs) But my personal trainer slash our Redeemer youth pastor, Wilson Jameson, is encouraging me. He says, no matter how fast I go, Nothing takes the place in training of one simple metric, miles on feet. I just have to put in the miles. I just have to put in the time. If they're not fast, that doesn't matter. Keep putting in the time. Yet each mile represents the loss of time, energy, and comfort. They cost me pain. But if I want to reach that finish line, it will simply cost me. I can't have it both ways. I can't have my cake and eat it too. Here's the reality. If I didn't value crossing that finish line, I would never be willing to pay the cost. I wouldn't do it. If crossing the finish line didn't matter, I would not put in that work, experience that pain, experience that loss. I just wouldn't do it. And if the kingdom, God's power in, through, and over my life in this world isn't more valuable than the little things I'm holding on to, then I'll never pay that kind of price either. In Colossians 3, Paul describes what idolatry might look like in a culture with no statues and no shrines like ours. He says that covetousness is idolatry. You shall not covet. The 10th commandment warns us against wanting for ourselves what God gave to someone else. And isn't that the root of all of the other sins? Isn't coveting the root of all the other nine commandments? Think about it. We want what only belongs to God, so we put ourselves or others before him. We make him into our image. We take his name in vain. We take his Sabbath day for our own pleasure. We want what God gave gave to others, so we take the honor that belongs to our parents. We take the lives of others in murder. We take sexually what is not ours in adultery. We take the truth into our own hands when we lie, and we take, and we take, and we take, and we take. We take because we can't handle the loss, that feeling of deprivation, of not getting what we think we need, of not getting what we want. In my own life, this is about the feeling of being in control. When I'm angry, it's typically me trying to take control of the present in light of the past. Oh no, I'm not going to let that happen again, right? I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to get angry. When I'm anxious, it's me trying to take control of the future. Anybody resonate with that? I want to feel like I'm in control, but I'm not. The good news is that God's word meets me here. James 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet, there's our word, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Matthew 6, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He says, do I not feed the birds? Do I not clothe the flowers? Friends, the things that have a hold on us are revealed in our inability to let go, 
our unwillingness to admit that we are not in control. And Jesus' invitation into his kingdom is an invitation to lay it all at the feet of the king. I don't know for you if it is sex or money or relationships or freedom or your reputation or your self-protection that you're holding so tightly to. But I'm encouraging you to ask, are you holding on to these things or are they holding on to you? The rich man in another story went away sorrowful because he was unwilling to grieve, unwilling to lose for the sake of following Jesus. But these two men do so without hesitation. Did you notice it? They do it at the drop of a hat. Look at the text with me again, verse 44. You might skip over this. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Don't miss that line. In his joy. The, his joy did not come with receiving the reward, right? That would be joyful, cashing in all the treasure. His joy came as he was getting ready to give everything away. What could possess a man to make such a monumental decision so quickly? Only joy. Only joy can motivate, can animate the Christian life. Only joy can fuel the willingness and courage it takes to lean into loss for the sake of Jesus. I remember years ago, a non-Christian friend, genuinely curious about why I believed what I believed, once told me, so your Christianity, it's basically just self-denial, right? And I remember telling him, no, not at all. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As we delight, as we take joy in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our heart, not the desires I currently have. He gives me new desires. It's not self-denial, it's transformation. I want new things as I walk in the kingdom. That's the power of joy. That is the Christian call to grieve the loss for the joy of the kingdom. Self-denial is a not a powerful enough motivator for you to live this Christian life. It's simply not. Delight is the stuff of the kingdom. But to get there, we must grieve. We must grieve our sin, ourselves, our sense of control. As Dr. John Cox reminded us at our recent marriage seminar, we can be anxious forever, we can be angry forever, but true godly sorrow, that leads us all the way through. That leads us all the way through. Psalm 30, sing praise to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, y'all finish it for me, but joy comes with the morning. The song we just sang, trouble in my way, I have to cry sometimes. Trouble in my way, I have to cry sometimes. Jesus will fix it after a while. That's Christian joy. That's Christian delight. This brings us to our second point. Having counted the costs and grieving the inevitable loss of living in the kingdom, we turn and we place utmost value in the cross utmost value in the cross. It's important though here to point out, as other commentators have, that there's an enormous difference between how we receive the kingdom and how we merit the kingdom. Do y'all see the difference between those two phrases? How we receive the kingdom and how we merit it. 
The only thing we bring to our own salvation is the sin that made it necessary, right? And in Matthew 4, our response to the kingdom drawing near is always, only, ever repentance and faith. So we merit the kingdom by faith in Christ alone. Why? Because it's his merit in the first place. That's how we merit the kingdom. But receiving the kingdom is another story. Earlier in Matthew chapter 13, we saw that we receive the kingdom like children. That wasn't Matthew 13. That was a different parable. But remember, we, we receive the kingdom like children. There is a posture that accompanies life in the kingdom. And that is the posture of someone who has placed utmost value in Christ at the expense of anything and everything else. In one of my undergrad classes, we were covering a lot of ground on a fairly complex topic. And our professor, a dear, kind person, but not the clearest thinker or communicator, had been all over the place in the lectures. And one of my class, classmates, confused and a little exasperated, raised their hand and said, what can we expect to be included on the midterm? Because <laughs> we genuinely had no idea what we were going to be tested on. And I'll never forget how this teacher replied. In all seriousness, something between nothing and everything. What am I supposed to do with that? It's very vague. Nuanced to death, right? But I contrast this with my chemistry professor. I enjoyed chemistry. It did make sense to me. But even then, he was so, so clear. When I tutored, I tutored people in chemistry, and whenever they'd ask me how to study for his tests, I would say, if he takes the time to write it on the board, memorize it like the back of your hand. I knew what he expected me to know. It just so happened he expected me to know everything. He expected me to know everything. The call was high. The expectations were high, but they were abundantly clear. There wasn't a wasted word. And it changed the way I approached his class. It changed my posture in that class because I knew what he was saying was important. Friends, the same is true of our king and his kingdom. We want to bargain and deal. We want this sin for that sin. This scripture, yes, that scripture makes me uncomfortable. But the king gives us no such bargaining chips. We can't kick the tires and find a good deal on this kingdom. It is of infinite value. And so we can give everything away and enter the kingdom with nothing. We enter the kingdom with nothing. At my worst, and many times along my journey, and I'm sure some of you can resonate with this, I have been hesitant, if not unwilling, to count the costs. Hesitant, if not unwilling, to count the costs. Tim Keller gives voice to the protest that arises in our hearts here. He says, if following Jesus means I have to do what Jesus says with my sexuality, my money, my relationships, then forget it. I'm not willing to pay that. But in that instance, I'm not just overvaluing my freedom and my sin, I'm undervaluing the king and the kingdom. Keller goes on and asks, how do we know if something is expensive? Have you ever thought about it? How do we know if something is expensive? Is $500 expensive? Well, it matters what it is. He says, if it's a screwdriver, yes, that's very, very expensive. But if it's a brand new car, I will be right back because I'm going to go find $500 that I do not currently have. That's the response. 
Friends, once we have counted the cost, grieved our losses, and placed utmost value in the cross, we can, in our joy, give it all away. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, suffering under the German Nazi regime, said, when Christ bids us come, he bids us come and die. And in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he describes a common lie that too often has a hold on my heart. It's the lie that the grace of God is cheap. He says this, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it causes us to follow. It's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. It's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. It's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. What costs God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Hebrews 12 tells us this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For joy, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are told here explicitly what Jesus tells in mystery in these parables. We lay aside what weighs us down. Why? So that we can finish and be with Jesus, who for joy did it all. To enjoy the treasure of his people and his father. It was worth it for him. It was worth it for him. I was also a swimmer in high school. Once again, not fast. Um, the coach was really good. She swam for LSU, made it to nationals, almost made it to the Olympics. Watching her swim was amazing. It like three pulls and she's across the entire pool. I couldn't understand it, but she also had a little brother who was on the team. Little brother did not care at all. He did not want to be there. He shows up to a meet one day, not even wearing, you know, you're supposed to wear the little tiny swim shoes. I didn't even wear that one. Right. But uh, he didn't even show up in a regular swimsuit. He's just wearing his favorite soccer shorts that have long since lost their drawstring. And, you know, you're supposed to get up on the blocks and you put your hands down here and you wait for the buzzer and then you dive into the water. Well, he would approach the blocks like this. He'd hold on to his shorts 
and then dive headfirst into the water. And literally, while he's swimming, he's stopping every couple of pulls to pull his shorts back up. And he's still doing fairly well because he's got the talent and the athletic gifts of his sister. Until we get to the final race. And I remember watching this just amazed. So it's a relay race, and it'll help us win um, the meet. He gets up there, and all of a sudden, it's worth it for him. And he loses his sense of shame. <laughs> he, leaves it, he leaves it all behind. <laughs> and no, he did not change into a Speedo. But those soccer shorts were floating in the pool while he reached the finish line and got that gold medal. With joy, he gave it all away. He let go of what he was clinging to. Beloved, let us ask again, what am I holding on to? What am I holding on to? What is holding on to me? What might living in the kingdom of God cost me? And with joy, give it all away for the sake of victory. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see the riches of your kingdom, that you would help us know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich, not in material wealth, but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Bless these dear people as we sit under your word and soak it all in. Thank you for the gift of worship. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, encourage us, lift up our eyes today to see you and count the costs. We love you, and it's in your precious name I pray. Amen.